Hello and welcome back to Back to the Books with Isabel Flynn and Kieran Sanger. A podcast where two millennials discuss their recent reading, new releases and current literary happenings. So just keep watching. Oh, no, nope. listening, listening. No. Oh. <laughs> And welcome to Back to the Books with me, Karen Zanga, and Isabel Flynn. Hello, Isabel. Hello, you all right? Yes, I'm good. Day 912 of isolation, and I've not gone too mad yet, which is good. Nice. Yeah, what is the sun? What is the outdoors? I don't even know what day we're on. I mean, I'm not even saying it to be funny. Legit, I do not know what day we're on. I'm about 30% sure it's a Tuesday, but uh, it won't be when we put this up. So who, who it doesn't even matter. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? So today's episode is going to be a bit different to the one we planned because, and I will explain, <laughs> we did plan to do a really nice, intense, meaty classics episode. You know, the history of classics, what do classics mean to us, why you should read them. So we got everything ready, we sat down to record, and then we spoke for four hours about the Gothic and not moving on to anything else. Yeah, we were basically like, oh, you know, we'll touch on kind of different aspects of it. So like the Gothic is really interesting and then we've had other plans. And then um, we realised about four hours in, we sort of looked at each other. Well, we didn't because we're recording this remotely, but we sort of looked at our screens and went, oh, classics was a long time ago, wasn't it? (laughs) We have gone on a very long and a very jaunty tangent, my friend. Yes, yes. But fortunately, um, we realised that this seemed to just be the... The topic of the day and the one that was really kind of grabbing our attention. So we're just going to come back and do a nice, tasty gothic special for you guys. Exactly. So we're going to be talking about some of our favourite gothic reads, ones that you should sort of get into if you're not too familiar with the gothic, and then rounding off with some modern gothics just to whet your appetite. How about that? And maybe do some spooky ghost impressions as well, I think. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, it's mostly about patriarchy. Ooh, I'm the ghost of the patriarchy. <laughs> so I am going to treat you all first to a little um, sort of historical rundown of the Gothic, where it started and kind of how far it's come. Um, please don't run away. I promise this is interesting. <laughs> I'm here. Don't worry. I'm here. Yeah, at least you're listening. Um, So the Gothic kind of is officially given a starting year of 1764, um, when The Castle of Otranto was written by Horace Walpole. And this was deemed Gothic because that's literally what he called it. Um, He subtitled the second edition as a Gothic story and a genre was born. So I won't get too into the details of the book itself because it is bonkers. The first major plot point is that a wedding is cancelled because a giant knight's helmet falls out of the sky and kills the groom. Oh, Isabel, if I had a penny for every time that happened to me. I know, I know. Like so many don't tell the brides ruined by enormous bits of armour just uh, smushing people. Just falling out of the sky like, oh my goodness, again? But yeah, so it has a lot of elements that we still recognise as Gothic today. And Walpole was kind enough to give us an explanation of what Gothic is that I still think rings true. It's very kind Mm. of him. Um, So Walpole claimed to have created, actually, first of all, the first thing he did was pretend that it was like a rediscovered manuscript from like a medieval Italian castle. And people loved it. People thought it was amazing. And then he went, oh, that thing you really like, I wrote it myself. And everyone was like, it's crap. It's trash. <laughs> so that 
So uh, my opinion has changed, good sir. Exactly, he was like the Robert Galbraith of the day. Ah. So he eventually, after he was, you know, had climbed out of the box of shame, um, claimed to have created it as an experiment to blend the supernatural kind of excessive melodrama of medieval romances with realism and depth of character and plot of the new emerging form of the novel. Um, And for me, that's a really great way to kind of identify the Gothic as opposed to just like a ghost story or horror. Mm. Um, It's not just shocking and scary and creepy. It's also possibly real. You know, the characters react in in, in familiar and realistic ways um, or Mm. at, at least their actions are given justification through their psychological depth and reasoning. And the Gothic kind of exists in this constant duality of being both familiar and alien, close and distant, um, at the same time in the same space, which is a concept generally called uncanny. Um, Mm. And because of that, you can't just put the novel down and walk away. The thing about the Gothic, as opposed to just something scary or horrific, is it breaks out of its existence as a book and it kind of follows you around. You know, that creepy, eerie nature of Gothic isn't just about looking at something scary. It's about recognising yourself and, and the reality of life in the fantastical literature that you're reading. Isn't that, like, interesting? Because when we read books or even watch films and we watch a horror and it's so ridiculous and absurd, you're like, oh, it's not real, so it's fine. But then if there are strands of realism in a book or a film, it becomes more scary. And I think that's what, to me, gothic is, kind of. It's got those elements of the absurd and the uncanny, like you say, but there are elements of realism sewn in and that makes it even more terrifying. Exactly, definitely. You know, it's not kind of, you can't look at it as something over there just for fun. Mm. It's something that kind of makes you consider the real world implications of things. And um, and that is specifically someone I wanted to talk about. Anne Radcliffe um, did really, really well. So she was among the earliest Gothic writers and she kind of helped to establish the genre. She's generally credited with um, kind of refining the genre into how we recognise it now. Mm. Um, and I don't know how strongly I would recommend her novels because they are a little bit dated. Um, Every woman faints at least twice and it's like, oh my God, stay on your feet. (laughs) I mean, again, if I had a penny for every time that happened to me, (laughs) even now in Morrison's, just waiting to get a uh, a birthday card for my granddad came close. That that is because the queues are so long now and you all have to stand two metres apart. Yes. And the the twists are a bit wet, you know, like, but I mean, to be fair, I will say... um, Read a Sicilian romance if you want a really short little flavour and read the Italian if you want to tackle the best one that's absurdly long. Up to you. Um, but yeah, so her, her work touches on something that I think makes the Gothic a particularly important and fascinating genre. Um, so where Walpole's story is largely an experiment in form for its own sake, Radcliffe and other women writers at the time started to do something really interesting with this like blending of the realistic and the supernatural. So they started to use these fantastical and unrealistic plot lines to mask really hard hitting political and social commentary, um, usually around sexuality and gender and patriarchy. So at this point in history, people were living through a time of highly charged opinions around women and their place in the public sphere, both cultural and political, how times have changed. I know. Can you imagine living in a time when women's place in the public sphere, both cultural and political, is a topic of contention? Imagine, Isabel. Imagine that. I know. 
<laughs> cast your mind. Ghastly. Um, but yeah, so women's writing was somehow both frivolous and worthless because it was women's writing and yet so powerfully kind of persuasive and evil that it presented moral dangers to the very foundations of society. Ooh. Oh no. However, I will say, despite that, Anne Radcliffe still managed to become the highest paid professional writer of the 1790s. So take from that what you will. But as a woman, you had to be careful of how kind of political and presumptive your writing seemed. Mm. So... And Radcliffe stories always take place in both the past and in another country. They involve all your gothic tropes, the crumbly old mansions, the mysterious lights in tower windows, you know, all the tropes that we associate with this unrealistic and sensationalist plotline. However, the major components of her plots are distinctly less sensational. And Radcliffe's novels always, always, like always, centre around a young woman trying to escape from or avoid marriage to a terrible man. They are either orphans or they have evil fathers trying to pull them off. Mothers are often missing or dead and the father has remarried this kind of um, vapid younger model. Uh, our heroines often face the choice between being a wife or a nun, you know, that to trapped in a violent crushing marriage or trapped wasting away in an abbey. And you're thinking, hmm, these books seem to be a damning indictment of the limited rights of women at the time and the fact that they have no control over their money or their own sexuality. But yeah. by dressing these political points up in the guise of a sensationalist and fantastical novel, Anne Radcliffe can get away with some really hard-hitting stuff that would have kicked up a much bigger stink if she'd written about it explicitly. Uh, clever. So it's kind of using it as like an invisibility cloak of moral and social issues. Yeah, she's sort of she's sort of sneaking it up in sort of this like uh, exp you know extravagant velvet dress and putting a hat on it and being like this. No, this is you know this is a silly novel written written about like medieval Italy. You know, I'm not talking about our times. No, no. And like the cleverest thing about Anne Radcliffe's work is that this scary gothic creepy element always have a rational and natural explanation. It has just occurred to me that she basically wrote the original Scooby-Doo. Oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Ghosts are never real. It's always a man in a mask. The evils and the injustices are always down to the characters in the novel. So that creepy light everyone's been seeing in the abandoned half of the castle, turns out it's the heroine's mum in prison so her father could remarry. Um... And that for me is why Radcliffe and her version of the Gothic is so great. You know, she, she sets up this story where the threat feels like it's coming from ghosts and curses and evil spirits, but actually it's just the patriarchy at it again. Oh, shakes fist, damn that patriarchy at it again. <laughs> I think the, the next kind of point to jump to is that the Gothic was parodied almost straight away because the Gothic is kind of a self-parody. So um, a really obvious example is Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. Um, and some people who are maybe familiar with Jane Austen will be going, she wrote a gothic novel, what? And to be fair, for some time, people considered Northanger Abbey to be like a comic parody of a gothic novel. Um, mm. So the heroine Catherine Morland is this derpy little country bumpkin who reads too many gothic novels, uh, specifically Anne Radcliffe's novels. They are mentioned and named, which is excellent. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. She reads The Mysteries of Udolpho. Oh. Yeah. That's dope. I know, I know, right? I was like, oh my God, um, <laughs> Jane Austen, you've done it again. So when she's introduced to this like sexy as hell Henry Tilney, who also reads gothic novels, by the way, absolute babe, um, <laughs> and comes to stay at his home in Northanger Abbey, she begins to kind of suspect that General Tilney, who's Henry's dad, killed his wife and starts trying to go on this gothic quest to uncover the truth, looking for secret passages that aren't there, um, going through his cupboards. You know, he... Um, 
she she finds this document that she thinks are like secret hidden papers and it turns out to be like lists of laundry and you're just folding up like a deck chair in secondhand embarrassment for this wally that sounds excellent right yeah it's it's amazing and it's also so clever because on the surface it seems like austin is making fun of gothic novels but more kind of modern thinking um is that northern Arabi kind of acts like hot fuzz you know simon pegg and nick frost yes yeah yeah, yeah. i know the one yeah yeah um so it's this it, i know it's a weird comparison but that movie is both a parody of a buddy cop movie and a stonkingly good buddy cop movie. Um, Shaun of the Dead is both a parody of a zombie movie and a stonkingly good zombie movie. So what Austin is doing here is really clever. On the surface level, this is a realism novel that makes fun of the gothic genre and, you know, silly old Catherine Morland for believing in them. Mm. But as you read the novel, you realise that Catherine's novels actually give her a much deeper understanding of what happened to Henry Tilney's mother than any of the other characters have, because she has, without knowing it, been steeped in lessons about patriarchy and women. And she comes into this society clueless about its superficial values, but accidentally seeing the truth of what's happening. And so in this way, Austin creates something that looks like a spoof of a Gothic novel, but actually acts as a love letter uh, to it. That is just so clever. So, so clever. Genius. Jane Austen can do no wrong, in my opinion. Hats off. I mean, <laughs> taking my proverbial hat off to Jane Austen. But I mean, th this was a book I had heard of, but never had read because I'm not the biggest fan of Jane Austen, but you'd mentioned this to me previously about Northanger Abbey, how good it is and how funny it is. So I've yet to read it, but I have actually bought a copy based on your recommendation. Yeah. Very pleased. I mean, it'll probably arrive in like 3000 years time because of everything that's going yeah, on yeah. right now, but I'm going <laughs> to read it soon. Amazing. Awesome, awesome. You can report back and uh, tell me at which point you put your head in your hands and went, oh my God, Catherine, what's wrong with you? Oh my and then at which point you were pumping your fist in the air going, yes, Catherine. Well, thank you, Isabel, for getting us up to speed with Gothic and the history of it. There was a lot of stuff there that I didn't even know um, about the genre especially the whole Anne Radcliffe being in Northanger Abbey. I thought that was really interesting. But I wanted to take a deep dive into one of my favourite gothics, or favorite gothic novels, I should say, uh, and that is Wuthering Heights. Surprise to all, an English lit student loves Wuthering Heights. Shocking. <laughs> and a Kate Bush fan. I know, but I'm, oh, I feel like such a cliche when I say it. I don't know. <laughs> Something just feels a bit like, oh. So basic. I know, I really do feel that way. But there's just so much in the book to love using this guise of uh, the uncanny and the surrealism and this sort of fantastical nature to guise over social and moral issues of the time. Yeah. I think Wuthering Heights is a prime example of that. It's considered one of the most famous love stories in Western culture, but actually, is it really? If you look at the main characters of Catherine and Heathcliff, they have a very passionate, intense relationship, but ultimately it's kind of doomed from the start, but yet it's still captivating for readers. And even though it presents the story of Cathy and Heathcliff as a story of romance, it's actually more about a tale of violence, haunting and abuse, and how the gothic themes that you talked about are actually reworked and expanded to address Victorian concerns about gender, class, poverty, 
and the ideology of the Victorian domestic and the restraints of women inside that domestic. In terms of actual plot, for those of you that aren't too familiar with it, it follows the life of the anti-hero Heathcliff, who is an orphan adopted from the streets of Liverpool by the Earnshaw family, and Heathcliff is brought up alongside the family's daughter Catherine and their son Hindley, and the book tells of their complicated but intense relationship, but then their power struggle over the years, so how Heathcliff and Catherine have this tumultuous relationship which ends in tragedy, and then how years later when there's like a new generation of Earnshaws and Heathcliffs, the older Heathcliff takes his revenge. I mean, you know more about the formalities of the book in terms of like the narrative and stuff, but structurally the book takes, is it called a box narrative? Was it that what you told me? I think it generally gets called Chinese box narrative, where a story's in a story's in a story's is in a story, yeah. Yes, because the narrative consists of a visit from this man called Lockwood, who arrives at the house, which is called Wuthering Heights. And at the very start of the book, he is haunted by Catherine's ghost. And then he basically tells one of the house's servants, Nellie, what he's just seen. And so begins her talking and telling the story of young Cathy and the family and how they found Heathcliff. So the story unfolds for Lockwood as it does for us. But what I just love about it is it is a very straight up perversion of the moral standards in terms of what Victorian women were told to do and what their place was in society. Mm like they were very much confined to the household. I mean, during the 19th century, women were linked with the site of the home to the extent, I think some critics, I think, was it John Ruskin? He basically said women's bodies themselves are private spaces of domestic or the domestic. So the idea is that women have this tiny little space to occupy themselves and that is it. They yeah, can't yeah. Go it's a really fascinating space. kind of development in Victorian society because I think a lot of people have this idea that you know men working women staying home was how it always was and it's like nope that is a very specific Victorian middle class industrialization thing um and I, I do agree that I think um mm. Wuthering Heights looks really well at how the, the extent to which those very strict generals create repression and how that repression then kind of boils back over again and, and you know, devolves into violence and, and an overwhelming passion like you were describing. Yeah, completely. And this theme of female imprisonment as a kind of fuck you to Victorian <laughs> domestic ideas, it shows that really in this story, the only way out for women is through self-destructive means. So Catherine just goes on this spiral of madness, whatever you want to call it. And that's kind of her only way out. And Heathcliff is almost a weapon and an accessory to that escape, which is a shame, really, because it just means women at the time just didn't have a choice but to stay at home and to deal with the life they were told to live. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's kind of, you know, we're always like, oh my god, you know, people romanticizing Heathcliff, but I guess it is that kind of, but Daddy, I love him, kind of, you know, bad boy biker kind of motif, and often it's, it's not that they really love that person, it's that they want to kind of rebel against what they consider to be restrictive um, and and very domestic expectations for them. And it's a shame as well because, like you were sort of saying about Anne Radcliffe, if Emily Bronte had written a really straight up explicit exposure of the treatment of women but also ideas of like class and poverty it would just be written off but then at the same time i don't actually think the book had immediate success when it came out yeah it kind of feels like one of those things that everybody's kind of damning and and you know poo-pooing it's like 50 shades of gray like everyone's oh no that's garbage that's trash that's immoral and then sneakily like reading it under their pillow like oh my god oh my god spank her again yeah exactly like they pretend to be outraged but secretly like reading the pages at midnight with a torch under the bed <laughs> and given that uh victorian like victorian torches were oil, oil gas lamps that's probably very dangerous yeah we, we do not approve of lighting the bed on fire thank you very much <laughs> But with Catherine as well, what makes it even more interesting with this idea of her being trapped is how similar Heathcliff's situation is. Yeah. Because he's very much the literal outsider that comes into the house. But also he never really finds his way. He's always deemed as the outcast, as the isolated individual. And, you know, Heathcliff desires social power through class elevation, through money and through property which doesn't really mean the house, Wuthering Heights. It also means Catherine, because obviously at the time, women were considered property. Yuck, I know, gross. <laughs> but because Catherine is regarded as a piece of property, as a feature of the household in which she's a prisoner in, it means that Heathcliff and her are one and the same. So when she is talking about how, you know, our souls are made of, his and mine are, are the same, it kind of speaks on a lot of levels. So it, it does have that romantic quality to it, but also it is looking at those moral and social issues of the time. Yeah, I think there's, um, when you say about how Heathcliff is kind of always locked out and Cathy is always lo locked in, I think that's another example of the kind of uncanny doubling that goes on in Gothic novels a lot, because as you said, like despite the mm. fact that their situations are ultimately polar opposite, it means that they are actually two sides of the same coin. You know, they... It, it, they find the kind of wildness and, and savagery within one another um, that they're kind of pressing down. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's that's another cool example of how the uncanny kind of crops up in these kind of strange different ways. In this case, it's kind of the uncanny coming back as like the repression of your kind of wilder sexuality. And it's almost subverting expectations of what you expect in a novel that was coming out in the 1800s with violence the supernatural but even places like the house which are meant to symbolize uh, a place of refuge from the outside you know it's warm and it's cozy Wuthering Heights is the complete opposite of that it's yeah a gothic site of abuse fear claustrophobia exploitation oppression flipping everything on its head completely again it's used to mask those key moral and social issues at the time. Yeah. And it's just quite sad as well because you just realise how awful it was for women at the time. And even today, you know, we've evolved so much, but yet there's still so much work to be done. 
and again, I think that's the whole point of the book. It really sort of highlights the tragedy of the tale, not sort of between the doomed relationship of Cathy and Heathcliff, but just the place of women. And there's no way, there was no way out for them. I think that's actually the most tragic thing about the book. Yeah, and, and arguably the most gothic. Like you were saying, it's this whole... Um... There's this whole critique of kind of the domesticity and, and the restriction, restricted gender roles kind of stuck into a story in which there are or aren't there, you know, ghosts and wild moors and violence. And mm. yeah, yeah. And that's the power of the book and its use of the gothic elements. It reveals the fundamental tragedy of Victorian society at the time, but also in the lack of a true space and a sense of belonging for both Catherine and Heathcliff. Obviously, the when the novel is in the mid midpoint, certain characters aren't in it anymore. Yeah. No spoilers, just in case people haven't read it. But also, it's quite interesting. Characters like that are at the same place when the book started. There's no real sense of progression. Yes, yeah, there's that kind of circling round. And like you say, it's like a little bit of a tragedy how even though things are different, ultimately they kind of end up treading the same path. Yeah, and it's very much the book ends with this overriding message of know your place, you can't leave it, you can't escape it, no matter how hard you try, you'll never escape it, which is horrible when you think about it. Yeah, I guess the characters are as boxed in as the narratives are, aren't they? You know, yeah. ultimately you, you're kind of so saturated in the social grid um, at the time that you end up, yeah, gridlocked. But you weren't a massive fan of Wuthering Heights because this is one of my favourite books of all time, cliched, I know. But you weren't a, a massive fan, were you? Uh, no, I wasn't. And I'll, I'll be honest, it wasn't because I thought it was bad or anything like that. It just didn't resonate with me. But mm. I think that in some ways that's kind of good to talk about because I think it is important to note that like just because Gothic is such an interesting and, and recognisable genre, it doesn't mean that all the books are the same and that they'll resonate mm. with readers the same way. So like far from it. So as you said, like if we take Wuthering Heights, I've read it and like I appreciated it, but it just never quite swept me away. Um, but for you, like it really resonated with you and it really captured your imagination. Mm, I think for me, it was just... Yeah. I could really see the passion there, even though these characters are awful and horrid to each other, for each other. Just the, the metaphors they use, the language in which they engage themselves with, they almost have this jewel of language to yeah. express how much they love each other, like how far they'd go for each other. And it just, it is enthralling. It's kind of like when you look at a tumultuous hurricane or something, you can't look away even though it's horrific and it's destructive in nature but yet you can't bring yourself to look away because of the power it has and the power it commands with just its presence yeah yeah it's kind of this um this kind of force of nature i guess and i guess for some people including me as well it's, it's interesting to see love actually portrayed in a way that isn't romanticized and isn't sanitized you know love is sometimes gross love and treating each other well and love and marriage do not always go together and i think in some ways that's something that wuthering heights deals with that a lot of other things don't um mm. but yeah i mean like i said you know it resonated with you because you're a passionate poetic person and it didn't with me because i'm dead inside um, <laughs> i'm just i'm just thinking about 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about another gothic novel called The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg, which we both also read. Mm. We both read it at the same um for the same module in university. And um yes. conversely, I adore that. I did a whole chapter on it for my postgrad dissertation. I loved it so much. And you thought it was just like whatever. Yeah, not a fan. Yeah, yeah, and that's completely fine. But I do think it's worth kind of uh realizing how similar these two are. So they're written about 20 years apart. I know, I checked. Um, mm. They both involve doubling and that uncertainty between what is supernatural and what's psychological. They both play with that Chinese box narrative we were just talking about where one story is sat inside another story. Yet they are completely mm. different and they resonated with us both in completely different ways. And I do think that, yeah, it, it's uh, as we talk about the Gothic as a genre, it's always important to recognise what a heterogeneous kind of uh, category it is, if you like. Um, some yeah. will sweep you away. Some are much more like science and psychology. Some are much more about passion and, you know, the, the wind blowing the wind blowing through your hair as you stand on the Yorkshire moors. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that that really enriches the genre. So... What we're going to talk about now is a book that both me and Isabel have read and one that we both absolutely love, and that's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yay! No. <laughs> I nearly went to applause then. Yeah, do you know what? I full on cheered, who cares? I'll get the pom-poms. Yeah, I'm clapping now. <laughs> there we go. Ha have a clap. Yeah, Isabel, we absolutely love this book, don't we? Yeah, this is my absolute favourite classic. I've not got it. might even be my favourite novel. So I'm going to completely fangirl on you and I'm not even going to apologise about it. We're, we're going to basically discuss it in terms of how it exemplifies each of the elements in the Gothic that we've touched on so far and kind of relink re it to everything we've spoken about. Um, yeah. Mm. Oh, and, and also we are both talking about the 1818 edition as opposed to the 1832. It is almost certainly not going to make a difference but just in case anyone sat there kind of adrift because what we're talking about doesn't make sense. If you've only read the 1832 edition, that's why. Guarantee there's someone now flicking through their copy being like, I need to know, God damn it, <laughs> which edition have I got? <laughs> It'll be in the copyright, chaps. But yeah. Thank you. So I think to kick things off, I think what's really, really interesting about it is how kind of the book really blends the themes of horror and irrationality of how like it, is a science novel but then it's also not a science novel yeah yeah so if we go all the way back up to the castle of, Atron uh, of otranto if anyone could be bothered to think back that far it's been about five years since we started this but um <laughs> it does it does exactly what that novel was intended to do which is to blend the realism of the novel form and the 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 depth of character the um the depth of plot and the excess of the supernatural romance so obviously what should be fairly obvious, like a sentient creature is brought to life without being conceived or born or reproduced by a parent being um, in any way, in any way that we would deem natural. And that seems utterly beyond the realm of possibility. Yet Mary Shelley creates this backstory for Frankenstein, mm. whereby his familiarity with modern scientific theory fuses with his fascination for this like ancient occult alchemy. And that gives him this unprecedented insight into how this big feat might be done. And so even though Mary Shelley leaves the how largely to the imagination, although obviously we, we get that kind of filled in in like later adaptations with lightning and stitched together body parts that Shelley doesn't really go into detail about how it actually happens. Mm. But the creature is being brought to life 
as a feat of science. You know, he's not created by a spell. He's not re resurrected by a religious miracle. Shelley makes out that this creature is created in an entirely realistic way. Mm. And also, I would say, for me at least, blending the supernatural and realism is the creature himself. So mm -hmm. he's a monster, like in any sense of the word, but he has a personality. He has his own desires and those desires are distinctly human. He wants community. He wants companionship. He wants mm -hmm. a lover. He wants mm -hmm. to be able to discover culture and be part of society. So mm -hmm. the supernaturalness of his design and his circumstances of being kind of jostles with this realisticness of his character and it makes this really like uncomfortable combination that makes him both human and not human in the same space so both familiar and unfamiliar which makes him drum roll please drum roll uncanny that, that for me is like one of the most gothic elements of it in that it is the exemplification of something that takes supernatural fantastical unrealistic elements and distills them into a plot that despite it being highly unbelievable could feasibly happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because what you'd mentioned previously about the idea of the uncanny and doubling, yeah. because Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, and obviously I, I feel like I need to add that the titular Frankenstein is Dr. Frankenstein. No, sorry, I made that mistake. He's not a doctor. He does not have a PhD or he's not been to medical school. You're absolutely right. Um, Victor Frankenstein, apologies. Yeah. But... A lot of people do misconstrue the name of the book as the name of the creature. And from my memory, he just he's not actually named, is he? Nope, he is what it is one of the major human components he is denied, which is the name. That's another thing I think he kind of goes after. I don't remember if he ever like uh ignore me, I could be just talking chat. But yeah. Yes. But the title name belongs to Victor, who is the novel's protagonist, the scientist, artist and creator of this unnamed creature and the creature is described as the demonical corpse to which I have so miserably given life and going back to sort of doubling they do sort of marry each other because they have this sense of belonging outside somewhere where they wish to belong they want to be accepted for who they are and for what they do yeah Whereas Frankenstein's monster is beyond the realms of humanity and understanding. Victor Frankenstein is just rejected because of his idea of he's overreaching the ethical law of humankind. You know, he's tampering in something, something that which shouldn't be tampered with. What's further interesting about that as well, these ethical laws of humankind of which he's breaching, it's almost like the romantic side of things kind of going on this philosophic edge of thinking and moral ambiguity of humankind and how far you can go yeah yeah i guess it's kind of the uh, another kind of feature of the gothic i guess is the jostling between the enlightenment where everything is rational and romanticism where it's all about excess and kind of um the what goes beyond human sensation and, and human kind of logic and kind of what we consider to be the natural order and because Frankenstein, Doctor, not Doctor, why do I keep doing that, Isabel? For goodness sake. Stop sending this man to, to medical school. He does not deserve to be there. He's got a lot of things going on right now. Medical school does not need <laughs> him. What I was saying was kind of the horror behind it, obviously in true Gothic fashion, would be the supernatural, the creature. 
inexplicable monsters, this demonical corpse that is described, but also it's more the melding together of key gothic tropes with haunting, exile, isolation, etc. With the anxieties of the period that preoccupied the romantics before. So the mm. idea of religion versus science, justice, the origins of life, but also how identity is formed and how much of a role education, culture and nurture shape identity. And kind of going from that, I think you could easily relate that back to Heathcliff. And I guess, in a sense, Kathy, because like Frankenstein, like Frankenstein's monster, Kathy and Heathcliff are isolated individuals and both belong outside the classic setting of home or just acceptance. Yeah, like the, the domestic sphere, I guess, that kind of um, the domestic structure. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And we look at someone like Heathcliff that is so abhorrently violent and awful and does the most terrible things. But then we have to think, okay, was he brought up like that? Was he tailored like that? How much of an impact did his childhood have? And how much exposure did he have to say like violence impact him to being the horrible man that he is in the novel? And I think it's interesting as well, because as you said, you know, the, the novel does look at this nature versus nurture, you know, what is science um, and what is not? How far can we go in the name of um, technological progress? And I think, as we were saying before, with all of the books that we've covered, they take the kind of anxieties of the day and the the kind of um, the, the cultural and political upheavals that you're experiencing and couch them into what feels like a surreal story. Um, so, yeah, I think I think you're right mm. on the money. They definitely... It, it, it's this lovely thread that kind of goes through Anne Radcliffe, Wuthering Heights, Frankenstein, despite Frankenstein being in between them. But, you know, in terms of what we've spoken about them in, um, yeah, it's definitely something that threads through the Gothic. Mm. And we made a point, and we had a sort of briefing about today's episode, we are talking about how often in history people misconstrue the name Frankenstein and give that to the monster... And by doing so, we almost said that kind of by giving the monster a name, that almost pulls away from the issues the book is trying to say. Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, one of my favourite things. So um, Elizabeth Gaskill, who was a writer in the kind of Victorian period, she wrote very realism novels. Um, That's for the audience. I know you know who she is, Kieran. I Um, love Elizabeth Gaskill, but yes. Isn't she the best? (laughs) North and South, absolute, absolute stunner. Um, But she, in her time, so this was not very long afterwards, Uh, accidentally misnamed Frankenstein's monster as Frankenstein. So this isn't a new thing. This isn't just us idiots in the modern day. Um, You know, they've Mm. been doing it almost since Frankenstein was published. Mm. And while I do think that making that mistake kind of pulls away, pulls away some of the kind of clarity around it, I also think that it adds this gorgeous layer of muddying who is the real monster. Oh, yeah, yeah. And kind of sat there like, oh, we've we've taken Frankenstein's name off him and given it to this poor creature who's been kind of shunned. He now has a name. Frankenstein is left nameless. Who is the monster, the creator or the created? Ooh. <laughs> and again, doubling. They, they literally are mirroring each other by doing that. Exactly, exactly. 
So that actually feeds into something else that I consider a very gothic trope, as we've been talking about the the um, the meta narrative. Um, so with Wuthering Heights and uh, Confessions, we were talking about the Chinese box style, and this has a very similar um, kind of playing with narrative and playing with storytelling. And so this book not only involves this like weird, uncanny doubling where the two characters reflect each other, as you've said. Um, but actually overlaps that again with its narrative structure. So if you haven't read Frankenstein, you might not know this story is actually technically an epistolary novel, which is a novel written in letters. And these letters are written by a sailor called Robert Walton to his sister, telling the story that Frankenstein told him after the major events of the novel have already occurred. So in this way, like Robert Walton's story contains Frankenstein's story, which then contains the creature's story. So each of these narratives is kind of layered on top of one another. And each of these narratives is given in the first person, even though they're all being reported by someone else, which means that each character speaks in someone else's voice. Mm. Um, and that kind of breaks the boundaries that are being set and blurs the lines where each narrator starts and ends. Um, mm. and, uh, and my favourite thing about it, my favourite thing about the whole novel is that even Walt Robert Walton's narration isn't the last layer of it. Oh, Yes, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Right, right. <laughs> so in the 1818 edition, there is one line, one single line that says, oh, oh God, but I'm going to be wrong. But it says something like, Walton in continuation, just written at the top of one of his letters. Who wrote that? It wouldn't have been him. Why would he write that hit his own continuation? So we have to assume it was his sister, his recipient. His sister is given the name Margaret Walton Savile. Those initials sound familiar? MWS? <laughs> Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, y'all. Ah, oh, it's so clever. It's brilliant. It's breaking all kind of boundaries. It's establishing incredible new things. She can do no wrong. But in, <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll calm down. In this way, Frankenstein does what all of these gothic novels do in their own right, which is to break through the safe and uncomfortable boundaries mm. of fiction and creep into real life and into the reader's head. You know, everything we've been saying, like the doubling, the the questions of the day dressed up the uh, all of these tropes and especially the way that the meta narratives push out pu push themselves out to the point where they break out mm. of the book um they they create this that this is the reason that the gothic is such a prevalent genre and something that we that fascinates people so much and and, and the reason why many of the um, classics that we still remember today are gothic because that feeling of something being a little bit too close and a little bit too familiar the idea that you can't just close the book, put it down and leave it behind. It's going to follow mm. you out. It's something that I think fascinates us and really resonates with us hundreds of years later. And you know when it's done its job as well. Like, I think that's yeah. a yeah. good sign of a book and a gothic book of that doing its job. That makes us think, you know, you put the book down and you're frightened, and you're but you're thinking as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely more of a psychological fear than a um than a simple like there's a monster and you have to run away and i think that you know through all of these however supernatural or not they are that is kind of the common thread in that they they reveal that the true the true reason to be scared is that humankind is terrifying as opposed to these things that you make up yeah we are the worst yeah we absolutely stink don't we well we'll just yeah. go we'll just leave see ya yeah bye doors open thank you for coming Right, well, I am utterly exhausted by my fangirling over Frankenstein. Apologies. But we do have a Never little... Never apologise. 
actually yeah this is me why would i apologize anyway um we are going to f round off this episode with a couple of recommendations for more modern gothic um stories for people who maybe aren't so comfortable with classics or at least classics that are so uh, far back so my first recommendation is going to be Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Um, we didn't talk about it in this episode, but it does deserve a really good deep dive at some point because it is an utterly iconic piece of Gothic literature. And um, I think it really signifies a turning point in our kind of literary understanding when we know now that we're not really scared of ghosts. What we are scared about is the, the fear that's created in ourselves. Um, and it's, it, it really signifies that a different kind of gothic mm. um, still has all the tropes. But, yeah, it's a much more kind of creepy psychological, psychological book. I really recommend it. It is so good. I've not actually read it, but I know of it. And I know Alfred Hitchcock turned it into a very good film. He so did, he did. It's on my list for sure. But, I mean, just on your recommendation alone, Isabel, I'll be reading it. Just like... Um, I'm very persuasive. Northanger Abbey. So thank you very much. <laughs> My first recommendation is it's quite a recent one, actually. And again, this is one Isabel recommended to me. Can you see a theme? I can. <laughs> um, Just read what I tell you, you'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. So this is Ghost War by Sarah Moss. And it's a really short novel. It's actually a novella, really, because it's about 200 pages, would you say, Isabel? Yeah, really, really tiny. Really, really tiny. But it is an explosively brilliant and horrific story about a young girl and her family that go on this camping expedition in rural, like, Northumberland, around there. Yeah. And basically to live as ancient Britons did from the Iron Age. There's so much to talk about in terms of class, gender and identity, but also questions what we allow ourselves to burden and to put up with, but also what we turn a blind eye to. And like many gothic books that we've discussed today it has this brilliant way of disguising social and political issues in the book with ideas of the haunting of ghosts and the ideology of the past coming back in particularly the dad because the dad character bill he's a working class bus driver but he has this utterly weird fixation on the past of how it was better then and he almost taps into this role of being sexist and putting his daughter and his wife in these boxes because it was like that at the time and tensions build and it just explodes I won't say too much because the less you know going into it the better but oh my god amazing horrifying in a way you won't expect but utterly brilliant and definitely deserves that gothic label. Yeah, completely. definitely, definitely. It's a kind of, it's like the gothic turned to class issues and the gothic turned to ethnogenesis. Mm -hmm. And I have never seen that done before. It may well have been, but yeah, I thought that was amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, my my second recommendation is going to be The Robber Bride by Margaret Atwood. Um, and personally, I think that a lot of Margaret Atwood's writing from that kind of period of her career um, can be kind of considered gothic. But this one in particular is um, it's just the story of one really, really evil woman and three friends that she meets at university and how she basically infiltrates all of their lives and steals all of their men um, in like really strange and very different ways. Um, but it has everything we talk about, you know, 
the disruption of the domestic, the distortion of reality, um, but it really it, it goes deeper and it really capitalizes on that psychological aspect of modern Gothic um, and, and plays with the idea that often reality, uh, that the, the distortion between reality and um, a supernatural is something that we build ourselves in our heads, mm. um, sometimes to cope and sometimes to justify our actions. And it is so good. Excellent. And it's Margaret Atwood, Maggie Atwood, one of our faves. Natch. Yeah, yeah, I'll be. Good old Margaret Atwood. Um, finally, I'll quickly talk about another one of my favourite modern gothic books. And it only came out a year ago, which is Max Porter's Lanny. And this is actually a book I recommended to you, Isabel, I believe. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that does happen occasionally. Occasionally. I, sometimes, sometimes I will do what I'm told. It is really good, though. Yeah, it's basically a really strange mythic fable about a boy that goes missing in this really tiny rural English village. And for the most part, it's narrated by this mythical creature, woodland type man called Dead Papa Toothwort, um, who kind of snakes within the village, listening to village gossip and finding out what's going on. He almost feeds off it. And that's represented through the formatting of the book, because if you actually were to open a page, all the lines are squiggly and they all kind of interweave and they almost bounce off the page. It's it's really bizarre, but it's also so enthralling and captures the madness that Max Porter can create on the page. But he doesn't shy away from tackling the big social political issues like Brexit, class issues, the division between the new generation and the old generation. And also how village mythology kind of can be shifted between fact and distortion, kind of reality and mm. fantasy. And it's just utterly bizarre, but also so rewarding at the same time. Yeah, it's it's a really good read. It's um it, it's really quick as well, and it just kind of pulls you in and just full on flings you down a down your hill and down you roll, and it's absolutely no mercy. It's so great. But yeah, again, definitely deserves a place in like the gothic canon because he blends that eeriness and that sense of unease with the reality of a, a small English village yeah. in the countryside. Definitely, definitely. I've got no more. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're all out of uh, gothic recommendations. Go find your own. Do your own work. We're not here to. We're not your mum. <laughs> go go read a book. For God's sake. <laughs> Yeah, stop listening to a podcast. What's wrong with you? Go outside and walk kids in nature. But not for longer than an hour. You've been listening to Back to the Books with Isabel Flynn and Karen Sanger. If you enjoyed listening, feel free to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform and leave us a rating or review. So listen to you next time. Wait, what? <laughs> Why did I say that? I... <laughs> How did we get it so wrong?